Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So growing up in England, as you can imagine, it's hard to escape the inevitable pull of football or soccer, as Americans like to call it, which, by the way, I recently discovered is actually a British word. I've mocked Americans for that for years, so I ask your forgiveness now. The British actually invented the word soccer to distinguish it from rugby and uh, used it up until a few decades ago. Well, as a child, I was drawn to follow one particular team, probably like some of you when it comes to baseball, basketball, American football. And, you know... As a child, you, you know, I had to have an allegiance, basically. All my friends had them in the playground. We would talk about our teams. And the team I picked was, of course, the best team at the time. I picked a team called Liverpool, which is a city about three hours north of my hometown, which sounds like not very far in America, but uh, in England, you know, that's probably like, like driving from here to Seattle, okay? And in the 1970s and 1980s, they dominated not just English football, but European football too. They were probably the best team in the world at the time. Sadly, though, Liverpool was far enough away that as a kid, I never got to go and watch a game live. I would just listen on my small portable radio, remember those? Or or I'd watch it on television whenever there might just happen to be a game on network TV. My first job, though, out of college was in a town 30 minutes south of Liverpool, just 30 minutes or so from the stadium itself. And so finally, in the late 1990s, in my early 20s, I had the chance to go and see them. Now, sadly, by then, they weren't as good as they had been. In fact, their crown had been taken by our fiercest of rivals, Manchester United. I struggled to even get the name out. (laughs) But I still remember walking into their hallowed stadium, which is called Anfield, that first time. And, you know, I'd grown up worshipping on Sundays in a thousand-year-old cathedral, but this was a cathedral of a different kind. And worship had happened here on Saturday afternoons at 3 p.m. for over a 100 years. Well, the best moment of all was probably not watching the game itself, but joining with 40,000 other Liverpool fans just before the match in singing the song that they sing every week before the game that's become synonymous with Liverpool Football Club and uh, became probably began in the 1960s, which is called You'll Never Walk Alone. It's a song first made famous in the Broadway hit um, Carousel, and then in 1963 it was recorded by by a Liverpool band called Jerry and the Pacemakers. Yeah, and the rest is history. And for almost 50 years, fans have sung that song before, during, and after the games. It's become probably the most famous football song in the world. And if you listen to the lyrics, you'll understand why. You see, it's a song of hope in the midst of great trials. And Liverpool is a city, perhaps more than many, that has gone through many great trials and tragedies over the years. And the words are this, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. You know, these are words of hope for even the darkest of times and words that we all need to hear from time to time. It's no wonder that the song became so famous, that we're not alone. 
that there are those who love us in this world. And in fact, that there is one who loves us beyond this world. And in our gospel story today that Ed just read to us, we encounter a couple of folks who are grieving and they are in despair. They are not sure what they're going to do next. They've lost hope because everything they had expected hadn't turned out the way they thought it would. Ever been in a place like that? Everything you expect has not turned out as you had hoped. And now they feel like they're just walking alone. But what we'll see by the end of our story is that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is always hope for everyone who follows him and that no one need ever walk alone. So let's turn to our gospel reading from Luke and let's learn about this hope, this hope that's found through God's word and in the breaking of the bread. You can follow along on your scripture sheet. It's on the inside there if you want to, or you can use the screens or pull out your um, phone, use your Bible app. And the context of our story today, first of all, is that it is the first Easter day. We're actually still back where we were last Sunday. First Easter day, 2,000 years ago, and it's been three days since Jesus died on the cross at Golgotha. And it's the afternoon, and all those who follow Jesus are, of course, still in despair. After all, think about it. Their rabbi, their leader of the last three years, someone they've spent every day with, he's dead and buried. Although there have been some strange stories coming from some women, that the tomb could possibly be empty. Well, as we pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, verse 13, we discover that two of Jesus' followers are on the road to Emmaus. That's a village about seven miles outside of Jerusalem, so probably a couple of hours' walk. And one of them is identified as Cleopas. You probably saw that. And it's probably the Clopas mentioned in John 19, verse 25. He's actually a blood relative of Jesus. That's Jesus' uncle, the brother of his father, Joseph. And the best guess as to who he's traveling with is that it's his wife, Mary, who's also mentioned in John 19, verse 25. And so here we have Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary walking on this road, this dusty road. They're overcome with grief. They're making this sad journey back to Emmaus, trudging along. They're devastated. Their hopes had been raised by this nephew of theirs. As we read in verse 21, they'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, to rescue them from the Romans and from foreign tyranny. You see, the scriptures promised a Messiah, and they thought Jesus was the one. But Jesus didn't deliver. You see, a Messiah who managed to get himself imprisoned and handed over to the Romans, who then crucified him, was clearly a disappointing delusion. But they've missed the point, haven't they? They've missed the point. And because of their misconceptions about who the Messiah would be and what they thought he would do, they're blind. They are blind to the momentous event that's just taken place in Jerusalem. As Bishop N.T. Wright puts it, they, like everybody else in Israel, have been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They'd been seeing it as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. But instead, it was the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering, through in particular the suffering which would be taken on himself by Israel's representative, the Messiah. 
You see, God's redemption of Israel and the world was coming through suffering and not earthly might. We talk about that, don't we, on um, Palm Sunday most years. And as they're about to discover, this tragedy was actually the greatest thing that had ever happened for them and for all of humanity. What they thought was so terrible is actually so wonderful. And so in this place of despair, in this place of false ideas, they need some redirection and they need some encouragement from God himself. But you see, in their disappointment, in their grief, in their depression, in their, they are, um, in their blindness to who Jesus really is, they don't realize that he's coming alongside them, walking right beside them on this journey and that they are no longer alone. And so Jesus does what he so often does. He lovingly rebukes people's misguided beliefs about him in order that they might truly know him. He lovingly rebukes people's misguided beliefs about him in order that they might truly know him. Don't know about you, but I've had some pretty misguided beliefs about Jesus over the years. And maybe you have too. And perhaps we still do in amongst us right now. The good news is God doesn't leave us there. He's willing to lovingly rebuke us and redirect us. And so in verses 25 and 26, we hear him tell them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory you know much like the women who took spices to the tomb early that day are rebuked by the angels and much like the 11 disciples will be rebuked by jesus later that evening jesus reprimands them for their lack of faith for their failure to listen to what he's been teaching them what he's been teaching them over and over again but he doesn't stop there no he doesn't leave them despondent No, like any loving parent disciplining a child or any good teacher doing the same, his love leads him to correct them and to put them on the right track. Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, as we've seen in our His Story series beginning way back last August, all of scripture points to who? Thank you. Points to who? Yes, we should know that by now, right? Including the Old Testament. You know, it gets a bad rap because it's called old. Okay, and for some reason we don't like old things in our society. I'm not sure why that is. But actually, it's all still relevant. It's all relevant. And these are the only scriptures that Jesus knows. Think about that. This is all he's got. And so for the next couple of hours, as they walk along the road, he turns to the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. He turns to the history of Israel. He turns to the wisdom literature. He turns to the poetry, the prophets. And he begins to explain to them all that he's been trying to explain to them for the previous three years prior to his death. You see, in order to recognize who he is, to see who's walking alongside them, they need to learn the true story of God, his story. The true story. And all of this is contained within the Old Testament. Yes, don't let anyone fool you into believing that the Old Testament is irrelevant. Again, these are the only scriptures Jesus had. And he quotes them over and over again. I challenge you, go read through all four Gospels today and you will see him quote them over and over again. Yes, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and... 
Thank you, my wife. <laughs> That's scripture too, folks. Second Timothy 3.16. In scripture, we encountered Jesus, the risen Jesus, over and over again. Old and New Testament. If we are to know him and to love him, we need to know and to love his word and meditate on it daily. Do you know and love his word? Do you read it each day? Don't be surprised if you feel like I don't really know Jesus if you don't read his word. Well, their journey comes to an end and they still don't recognize who's with them. Clearly something's going on in them, though, because they say to each other in verse 32, do you catch this? Did not our hearts burn within us? Did not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I think they're getting an early taste of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts and they encounter the scriptures afresh. But, you know, not enough has happened yet to fully open their eyes. The foundation may have been laid by Jesus, but it's going to take one more thing. And so in verses 28 through 31, we read this. So they drew near to the village where, which, to which they were going. And Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Cleopas and his wife invite Jesus in for a meal. Now, as an aside to this, think about that. If they decide, you know what, it's a risky business inviting this guy into our home. They're about to miss out on something, aren't they? If they choose not to show hospitality to this stranger as he seems to them right now, they're going to miss out on something. And I I just throw that out there as a, a bone for each one of us as we seek to show hospitality, hopefully, to those in our community. They invite him in for this meal, and then something very familiar triggers something very profound. As one commentator puts it, Jesus reveals himself in the midst of the basic moments of life. He is at home in the midst of our everyday activity. You see, they they sit down to eat, and Jesus takes the bread, which would have been unusual. He wasn't the host, but he takes the bread, he prays over it, he breaks it, and then he passes it out. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, just a few days earlier, maybe there was a meal in an upper room and Jesus did something very similar, right? So probably some bells are starting to go off in their head right there. And then, then maybe they're thinking, hold on, weren't we at this big event with 5,000 other people? Well, that was just the men. For some reason, they didn't count the women. And like, maybe there were 15,000 people there. And he broke this bread and he prayed over it and he distributed it. Remember that? And suddenly, suddenly they recognize who he is. They recognize it. And as one person puts it, that explosive moment was burned into their minds for eternity. And then he was gone. But their hearts were left with Easter fire. Their winter of soul was gone forever. So it is when the scriptures come alive in your soul with the centrality and reality of Jesus Christ. And these simple actions of walking together and sharing a meal They've experienced something really profound. In fact, I think they've experienced a conversion moment. They've been converted. They finally know who Jesus really is and what he's doing. He's not the Messiah they'd hoped for, no, but he's much better than that. In fact, he's the one who defeats sin and death and opens the way to everlasting life. He's the one who walks with them and also with us. He walks with us today. 
promising to never leave or forsake us. And it's such good news that Cleopas and Mary are willing to risk their lives by getting straight out of that place, running back along the road, this dusty, God-forsaken road, probably in the darkness of the night, which is dangerous, to get back to Jerusalem so that they can exclaim, Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. And tell the disciples what's happened. Well, Charles Erdman writes of this story. No story tells us more impressively the truth that a divine savior walks beside us all the way of our earthly journey. And yet our eyes are so often dimmed by unbelief that we fail to realize his presence. We walk and are sad while we might be rejoicing in his companionship. You see, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, is the same today as yesterday. And it belongs to true Easter faith to take to our own hurts the healing of the Emmaus Road. And maybe he's giving you a loving rebuke today and showing you who he truly is, as well as reminding you that whatever you're going through, whatever sadness, whatever tragedy, whatever sickness, whatever depression, whatever fear, whatever doubts, you can know his comforting and strengthening presence once again. And how is that? Well, first of all, you tell Jesus your trouble. Just tell him, here's what I'm struggling with, Lord. Be honest. And he invites us to do that each and every day. And you know, he remains a good listener with what the hymn calls a fellow feeling for our pains. And only as we lay aside prayerless resentment and self-pity and open our hearts to him will we know his help. So first of all, tell him. Secondly, let him minister to you through the scriptures. Relate that which gives you pain to God's purpose of saving love, his story. This will mean weekly listening to God's word proclaimed as we're doing right now, as well as studying God's word each and every day and studying it with fellow believers. And then thirdly, it will mean gathering together with other believers each week and breaking bread, as we'll do later on in our service. Encountering the living Lord Jesus in community and at the communion table. Something that actually flies in the face of our misguided Western individualism and our tendency to see church as a building, right, or an institution rather than our lifelong beloved family of brothers and sisters in Christ. And fourthly, we ask him to assure us that as we go through what feels like fire and floods, he goes with us and will stay with us till the road ends. And that, my friends, is a prayer that he will always answer. You see, as we read in the book of Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So wrote one man a long, uh, long ago to an ill-treated and distracted and depressed set of believers. And the Emmaus Road story urges us to do as the Apostle Paul says. And it also shows us how. I'll finish with this. Just this week, there was a beautiful moment during a Premier League soccer game. You don't necessarily um, equate the word beautiful with Premier League soccer all the time. But it was at Anfield, that stadium that I visited all those years ago. And it was between Liverpool and, of all teams, Manchester United, our most hated rivals. 
And it came when the Liverpool fans sang their song, You'll Never Walk Alone. And they sang it in honor of, get this, a Manchester United player. They sang it for Cristiano Ronaldo and his wife. You see, it had just been announced that uh, the previous day, this couple had lost their newborn son in childbirth. It was a terrible, terrible tragedy. And so because Ronaldo's jersey number is number seven, on the stroke of the seventh minute of the game, applause broke out among all the fans. Applause. Liverpool and Manchester United fans. And then the Liverpool fans spontaneously began singing, When you walk through the storm, hold your head up high, and don't be afraid of the dark. There was a spine-tingling moment of compassion from these hated rivals reminding Ronaldo and his wife that they didn't walk alone. They didn't walk alone. And as a reminder that in life, there are things that transcend even the fiercest of rivalries and that there's hope even when the storm clouds gather and it seems that all hope is lost because Jesus is risen and he's alive. And that makes every difference, friends. And he's sitting at the right hand of God, as we heard in our reading for Revelation. And he is praying for you. And he has authority over all those forces that stand opposed to us, that stand opposed to humanity, both in this age and the age to come. And one day he will return. And he'll right all the wrongs in our world. And he'll bring an end to all despair, all tears, all death, all mourning. This is the hope of the resurrection. And it's our hope today. Today, not just in the future. And we already see glimpses of his kingdom breaking into our world. And we get to play a part in that as well if we'd like to. Like Cleopas and Mary. We just need to be like them and go out into the darkness And share what we have seen, what we have heard, and who we have encountered. Bringing healing to a lost and very broken world. The question is, are you willing? And the good news is that if you are, you will never walk alone as you do it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you that as followers of you, We need never walk alone. You walk right alongside us as you did with those believers from Emmaus. By the power of your spirit in our lives, you walk with us. doesn't matter what we're going through, Lord Jesus. Think of the man who left the earlier service in tears and told me that his uh, his son's fiance had just died of cancer. But even in the midst of that despair, even in the midst of... Terrible news, the midst of what Ronaldo and his wife are going through, there is still hope because you are the God who has risen from the dead and conquered death itself. Help us never to lose sight of the incredible news that we have to share with all those who will listen. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.